Here at Memorial, it's, it's interesting. In, in the side office here, there is a whole wall of church mailboxes. H- have you ever stopped and looked to see what's put in those mailboxes? I mean, there are headbands and hair berets. There is Tupperware and glass bowls. And this morning, there was an entire giraffe crammed into someone's mailbox. Okay, it was four inches tall, but it's amazing the things that get put in there. And every, every Sunday morning, and, and when we come to church, my wife and I, we go by, we look, and we see what's been put in our mailbox. And one of the things that's really exciting is, is when you look into the mailbox, and there you see an envelope. And, and you know it's not any ordinary envelope. It's not the white, you know, 20-pound paper envelope that you buy in bulk, right? No, this is, this is an envelope that is slightly off-white. It has a distinct linen texture. When you flip open the back, it's gold-foiled on the inside. And you reach in and you pull it out... And on the front it says, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so request the honor of your presence at the wedding of their daughter to so-and-so. And you know, it's exciting. Because in that moment, you realize someone thought enough of you and took the time and spent the money, because things aren't cheap, (laughs) to send you an invitation to their wedding. I mean, it's one thing, I, I realize when we stand up here and someone's getting married and they invite the whole church, right? That's wonderful, and, and they can't afford an invitation for everybody. But when, when you do get that invitation, isn't there something inside of you that says, wow, I must be somebody. I get to go and enjoy the wedding. Weddings in our culture are celebrated and enjoyed and great amounts of money and festivity are put into them. And, and it's been the case throughout history across all cultures. I mean, weddings are significant events. People make a big to-do about them. There is a lot of joy that goes into preparing for a wedding. And it, it doesn't matter if you're part of the immediate wedding party or if you're the one getting married or you're just a friend. What you can expect at a wedding is the festivities and the joy to overflow from those getting married out into those that are observing and to join in that excitement and that pleasure with them. But I want you to imagine with me a different scene. In 2011, Prince William and Catherine Middleton had a wedding. And really, the only other wedding that was ever broadcast on TV before that was really Prince, that came to that level was Prince William's own mother and her wedding. In Great Britain, they make a big to do about the royal weddings. Everyone of importance is invited. The Houses of Parliament, the dignitaries from foreign countries, foreign leaders of nations are invited. 
But imagine a morning where the prince and the soon-to-be princess are getting ready. And the carriage has been prepared, gilded in gold, beautiful horses, magnificent pomp and circumstance. And they're going to ride down a road, and their end point is Westminster Abbey. And as they're headed down this road to the wedding, everyone is expected to be there. There is bated breath in anticipation of the arrival of the bride. And the carriage pulls up and she gets out and she has this beautiful long train. And she begins to walk up the front steps of Westminster Abbey. And the doors are thrown open and down the long several hundred foot nave into the church to the front. It's completely empty. No one shows up. No one's there. Our passage this morning is Matthew 22, 1 through 14. If you would like to turn to your pew Bible, that is page 100 or 1,534. This morning in our passage, there is a very similar scene where the joy of the wedding feast is not realized because it is scorned. If you will, look with me in chapter 22 of Matthew and let us read the words of Christ. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. We continue on in the book of Matthew. In the larger context, you'll remember from Greg's sermon last week, is a set of parables that Christ had given and was teaching 
to the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. Just a few verses before this, the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they had heard Jesus' parable, they, they realized that he was talking about them. All of the sudden, all the imagery and those things that Christ was using in his parable clicked for them, and they realized, hey, he's not being very kind to us. I think he's talking about us. That's how they perceived it. Now Jesus has their attention. Before he was speaking to them about how they had rejected the authority of God over their life, how they had given lip service to him, but their actions spoke differently. How that they thought that their own self-righteousness was enough to get them into the good graces of God. And yet, he says, that the sinners, those who know that they are sinners, are entering into heaven before you because you refused to admit your own sinful condition. And as we come to this next parable, the parable of the wedding feast, Christ is now not merely talking to them about how they are rejecting the authority of Christ, how that they are substituting their own brokenness for the goodness of God, but here he speaks to them how they are rejecting the very joy that God has prepared for them. Well, it's easy, you might think, to reject someone's authority if we have authority issues. But here Christ indicts them for rejecting the very joy that they were seeking. As we look into this passage, as we look at the joy of the feast, we'll cover three points. One is the glory of the calling or the invitation to the wedding. The second is the response to the calling. And the third is the joy in the calling. The glory of the calling. Here in this parable, we see that Christ is presenting a story describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he describes it as if a great king had thrown a feast for his son's wedding. Now, as we come to this passage, as we, we try to enter into what Jesus is saying, we have some challenges here. One, because this parable and and what Christ is explaining, as much as a wedding is familiar to us, there are other things about this story that, that either are unfamiliar to us or oftentimes we do not recognize. You see, there is a historical background to this story that Christ is presenting, to this parable. When he says the kingdom of heaven, He's talking to a group of people who have been steeped in the tradition of the Old Testament, who have been taught it, who have read it, who have studied it for their entire lives. And when he invokes the kingdom of heaven, it is as though he is invoking all of the memories that they have. He's invoking a story that goes thousands of years back, and he's bringing it to a point. He's bringing the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, the loss of a perfect world. When the King of Glory once walked with His people in the garden in innocence and in righteousness, and yet they rebelled against Him, against His authority, against His goodness. He's bringing to mind the story of Abraham, 
who was chosen not because he was great, but because he was least. Not because of the good works he had done, but because of his faith was he made righteous. He is invoking the story of the Exodus, of a people who had been enslaved, and yet their king came to them, using as his instrument Moses, and led them out of slavery, across the wilderness, provided for them for 40 years during the wandering, and then brought them to the banks of the Jordan. And through his servant Joshua, led them across the Jordan, and they claimed through his power the promised land that he had promised to them. He invokes the memory of King David, who was the chosen king of God, after the people had selected Saul on their own, and he turned out to be oppressive, and turned out to desire less than what God wanted for his people. God chose David. A king a man after God's own heart. Who, though he was not perfect, yet God used him to lead his people in prosperity, into spiritual victory, as they learned what it was to serve a good and gracious God. And he invokes the promise of the covenant that God would one day send a Messiah to restore to a broken and fallen creation the goodness that he originally intended for him, for this creation. So all of this, all of this history is brought to bear. When when Christ says a great king had a wedding feast for his son, there was no doubt in their mind what king he was talking about that it was the God who had led his people through all the ages. It was the king that the Pharisees and the elders and the scribes themselves professed to desire to have come. They professed to desire his justice and his righteousness to reign on this earth. So as we come to this parable, this passage, we... We must keep that in mind. That there is more to this parable than just the simple king. It is a king that has a long history here on this planet of interceding on behalf of his people, of caring for them, of loving them, even with hard love. This is the king. This is the glory of the calling because this is the glorious king that does the calling. There's more that we might look at here in this passage. You see, we, we all have weddings across all cultures, but in the first century, the wedding, is, the wedding celebration is very different from what it, what it is in our culture. In fact, the, the practices of the wedding mirror really what is done in the East today in countries like India. I have a friend at work, Reka is her name, and she was married in India, and shortly thereafter, she came to America. And I was talking with her one day. We had some time. It was the end of the day. We had finished with a meeting, and, and I was curious. And so I just began to ask her about her culture and what it was like. And 
she talked a little bit about her wedding, and we started talking about that, and I, I probed deeper, and it was fascinating, the, the celebration that they have for their wedding. See, here, a wedding is, is maybe a day long for the wedding party, right? starts maybe on a Friday night, and it'll end shortly after the reception is over. For most of us, coming just as guests to a wedding, it's a few hours, right? In India, it lasts for days, days upon days. It is a huge festival. Lots of money is spent. The best food is, that can be afforded is purchased. Clothes are purchased. Jewelry is purchased. There are meals upon meals upon meals to celebrate it. That image is much closer to what was going on in the first century. You see, in the first century, the wedding feast was a big to-do, and it could last multiple days, and there were multiple meals. But in the first century, unlike the luxury of our day, they didn't have watches. So if you were going to throw a wedding and a wedding feast, the first thing that you did was to send out invitations. And you would send out invitations to the people who were invited, and you would say, I'm getting things ready for a wedding. We want you to come. I will call you and let you know when everything is ready. It wasn't as easy as saying, well, 2.30, we have the rotisserie oven shut, set to go off at that time. Be here, we're starting. It was a process. They would go and they would purchase whatever animals or take them from their own flocks and they would begin to roast them. They would begin to prepare the other food. A big, long process. And then when the time came, when everything was set, the head of the feast would get his servants together or get those people who had volunteered, and he would say, go, go now, go call all the people who have been invited. It's ready. Tell them to come. And when the people received word that the wedding feast was on, that was it. Whatever they were doing, they dropped it. And they took off to celebrate the wedding. That's the picture we see here of a great king who is celebrating a wedding for his son. Who has already called people and invited them at the point we enter the story. And now everything is set. He has his whole spread laid out. And from the context of the passage, we actually find that the, the first time he sends for people is actually early in the morning. It's a, it's a morning meal is the word that's used there. So he says, it's ready. We're going to have a party all day into tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Go get the people. Tell them to come. And so the servants run out and they call the people who were invited. No doubt when they go, you can imagine them going up to someone's door or knocking and saying, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, it's time to come. He's got it ready. You should see what he has prepared. It's amazing. I've never seen this kind of banquet presented. It is going to be awesome. And Mr. Smith says, Well, that's good. Thanks for letting me know. Tell the king I appreciate it, but I'm not interested. And he closes his door. The glory of the calling was clear. 
The king was calling them to a festival and a feast that was beyond comprehension to most of us. And yet their response, the response of those who were invited, was not what we would expect. You see, their response, like Mr. Smith who closed the door, was threefold. For some, it was an indifference to the call. For others, it was an idolatrous avoidance of the call. And for others, it was outright insolence against the king. Here we see that the king had invited his guests. He made the first call and it says they refused to come. There was an indifference to the call of the king. Not only was it a king who was glorious and good to his people, but it was a king who had prepared a lavish feast for them and was calling them to enjoy it with him. And yet they behaved as though it didn't matter. Indifference is is shocking. Or at least it should be shocking to us. And maybe in this passage, it just doesn't resonate with you. But think with me a little bit about the horrors of indifference. Leslie Vernick is a marriage counselor, and she writes about indifference in marriage. Marriage is the one relationship, she says, where we publicly make promises to not be indifferent. We promise to love, to cherish, to protect, and to honor the person we choose to marry. We all may be indifferent in minor areas at times, but when we regularly fail to keep our fundamental marital promises, the marriage is in deep trouble, and to pretend otherwise is not healthy or biblical. She relates this story. Karen loved her husband and wanted things to work between them, but had little time. To, but he had little time for talk or fun together. He was busy running a business and making money, and these things took priority. When she tried to talk about her feelings, he became harsh and then refused to talk with her at all, sometimes ignoring her for months. When Karen pursued or pressured him to discuss their problems, he accused her of being controlling and manipulative. The only connection he was willing to offer her was sexual, and this left Karen feeling empty and used. Finally, for her own sanity, she decided she needed to have a heart-to-heart talk about changes needed in their relationship. She hoped that once Steve saw how hurt she was, he began to show some care about her and her feelings. She also knew that the area he'd be most receptive receptive to improving would be their physical relationship. Karen prayed and pondered, asking God to give her the right words to invite her husband into a different kind of relationship with her. She prepared what she wanted to say and practiced it over and over again until her tone was neither accusing nor sharp. One evening, after wiring up all her courage, she said, Steve, there is something that I need to share with you that's really important. Do you have time tonight? Okay, but I don't have all night. There's a football game starting in about 15 minutes. Karen took a deep breath and began, I know you get very frustrated when I'm not responsive to your sexual needs. I know you want me to be more sexual with you and enjoy our physical relationship, but the way you treat me much of the time 
makes me feel angry and hurt. When you ignore me for long periods of time or accuse me of being things that I'm not, I just can't manufacture warm and affectionate feelings towards you when I'm upset and hurt. Wouldn't you enjoy our physical relationship much more if you knew I wanted to be with you and enjoyed that part of our relationship rather than me just doing my wifely duty? Of course I would, Steve said. But then briskly added, but if wifely duty is all I can get, I'll settle for that. Steve's response stung, but it woke Karen up to his indifference towards her as his wife as a woman, and as a person. Everything in their relationship revolved around him and his needs, and as long as her body was available when he wanted sex, it mattered little to him whether or not she was loving and receptive or she was hurt or angry. That is the horror of indifference, and we are right to be shocked at it in marriage. How much more should we be shocked at our indifference towards a great king who has loved us deeply, who has sent his own son and given his own life for us? And yet, as broken people, we are terribly and horribly indifferent to the glory of his call to the wedding feast, to his salvation. But God is not indifferent. Richard Dawkins, you may know from his book, The God Delusion. In one of the interviews that is posted on YouTube, he was asked, what would you do if you died tonight? And he said, well, I suspect that if I met God, and that is highly unlikely, for he was a strong atheist, He said, I would ask him, why did you take such great pains to conceal yourself? You see, he was saying not, in his mind, was God indifferent, but that God was avoiding him. But it is from Scripture that we find, and it is the very memories that Christ is invoking in this parable, that God is not indifferent us. No matter what we are, He is not indifferent. He has come. He has acted. He has loved. He has been faithful. He has reached out to us. This morning, as you sit here, are you indifferent to this God who calls to you? Not only were the people indifferent, but we find in verses 5 that They substituted for God a practical idolatry. We read that when the servants came and called, it says that they pay no no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The parallel passage to this is in Luke 14. And in Luke 14, Luke describes a little more in detail their responses and what they went and did. For one... He made an excuse. He said, I've just purchased a field and I need to go check it out. For another, he said, I've just purchased a yoke of oxen and I need to go test them and make sure that I've made a good purchase. And for a third, he said, I'm just newly married. I can't come. 
Here, the king has invited them, and excuses are made. But how ridiculous are these excuses? Excuses. The purchase of a field. If the President of the United States called you and you had just purchased the field and you wanted to go look at it, and he said, I'm having a banquet, come. Any rational person might look at that and say, I bought a field. The dirt has been there for hundreds of thousands of years. It's probably not going anywhere. I can take some time and I can go answer the call. For the other one who bought a yoke of oxen, how foolish is this excuse to say that I bought a yoke of oxen sight unseen and now I need to go check them out and make sure I got a good deal. Placing the value of the oxen over the call of the king was to replace the rule and the reign of the king with their own idols. The third one, the newlywed. Now this, this we say, well, this is reasonable. This is, this is good. He, he's just married. I can understand. He doesn't want to come. Surely the king will accept that. But remember, we're inside of a particular context here, inside of a Jewish context. And, and within the Jewish law, there was plenty of allowance for this. You see, marriage was a good thing, viewed that way. And in the law of Moses, there was given an exception. If you were newly married, you basically got a year off. You didn't have to go to war. You had very few other responsibilities because the intent was you're two broken people coming together and there's going to be problems. You need time to work on these things. You need to give your attention to it. But you have a year The king is calling and asking for a few days. Not any king, but the king. And yet the excuse is made. Oh, sorry, just got married. I need to attend to my own business. How many times in our own lives do other priorities take place of those things which we ought to be paying attention to? It's hard to see it when we think about our responsibility or our reaction to God, how idolatry hurts Him. So let me make it hopefully a little clearer. Harry Chapin wrote a song called Cats in the Cradle. Perhaps you've heard it. A few of the verses go like this. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be just like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, the little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. And the last verse goes like this after... The father had found many other things to do other than spend time with the son. The father sings this, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. 
You see, my new job's a hassle and kids have the flu. But it's sure been nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. What does God think when we behave that way towards him? Not only indifference and idolatry, placing other things before a loving and caring God, before a great call that he has issued to us, but we find that these servants also exercise the measure of insolence. It says not only did some ignore the call, but the rest who did not make excuses seized his servants, mistreated and killed them. You see, while their king was great, while he had done glorious things for them, while he had prepared a banquet and a feast and had great anticipation of the joy they would celebrate with him, they rejected not only his servants, but in so doing, they rejected him and his reign and his kingdom. You see, Christ was saying to the Pharisees, you have rejected the very thing you claim to want. You speak of justice. You speak of righteousness. You speak of a society where all men and women and children are treated equal and loved and accepted. But you have rejected the very king who is able to give that to you. You have murdered his servants. You have despised him and his son. You have rejected your only hope. The last several weeks, both in our nation and in nations around the world, there has been turmoil and strife and trouble. And we grieve with the hurting. In our hearts, we long for peace and for justice. And yet we reject the very God who intends to give that to us. He created a good world for us, and yet we rejected him first and brought this world into the condition that it is. It is because of our own rebellion against him that the pain and suffering around the world exists. And yet when he comes to us with open arms and says, Come to me. I will give you peace. I will restore the creation to what it was intended to be. We reject him and his offer. Not just merely with indifference or insolence, but so often in our hearts we are filled with anger in rejecting him. That anger boils over in our relationships with those around us, with those whom we hate in our hearts. And we would murder them if we could. But decency prevents us from doing that. And we reject the reign of our king who seeks to give us a heart of love to reach out to others. In all of this, the response to the call by those who rejected who are first call is answered by the response of the king. The first portion of his response to some of us is very shocking. 
For he says to his troops now, Go and kill those who murdered my servants. Burn their city to the ground. It may seem shocking to us, but let me ask you to consider. If you lived in a world that was perfect, where there was never war, where there was never strife, where people treated each other in accordance with the image of God that they are made in. And someone entered into that world and murdered your mother. What is the appropriate response? What does justice ask for? That one person destroys the beauty and the glory of the perfection that God has created. You see, the response really is not that much out of order. In fact, not at all. For here they had rejected the perfect king, the perfect kingdom, displacing good with their own evil. Turning it about and saying, what you want is bad, what I want is good. And what they wanted was murder. And so the king to vindicate his own righteousness and the goodness that he intended for his kingdom and for his people removes from it those who would turn it to evil. But not only that, for his response is not only one of judgment, but his response is one of grace because look at what he does next. After justice is met, he says to his servants, Go out into all of the streets, all of the corners. My banquet hall is empty. It must be filled. Invite whoever you find and bring them in. Because those who were called first were unworthy. But my banquet hall must be filled. Why must it be filled? Because not to have people there, not to have his chosen people there, is to diminish the joy that he feels and that he in and of himself has produced. And so that his joy might be complete in us, he calls for all others to come into his banquet hall. The Jews had a very privileged place for they were his chosen people, chosen first in Abraham, given the privilege of the covenant of the law, given a righteous and a good law, promised the Messiah, and yet they proved to be unworthy because instead of receiving it, they rejected the Messiah himself. But in so doing, the call and the covenant was expanded beyond our wildest imaginations to all of us, to every man, woman, and child around the globe. As we heard read in Revelation that at the end of days, there will be people from every tribe and tongue, every nation and people from all over the world standing before the throne of God, worshiping Him. You see, the response of the king is not one to say, that's it, I'm done, it's over. His response is to say, joy must be complete. I must have people, my people, with me in my joy. And so he extends grace to everyone.
there is glory in the calling, the glory of the king who does the calling. There is a response to that calling, as we see. But there is also a joy in the calling. And this really is where I think the rubber meets the road. The rejection of the Pharisees to his authority, as we saw in the other parables, is important to note. But here he is saying, you're rejecting my joy. You see, the call of God was not a call of a king who hoped to bring people in and put them under his oppressive reign and his rule. It was not the call of a king who said, come follow all of these rules and then you'll be accepted. It was the call of a king who said, come, no matter who you are, no matter what your condition. How do we know that? Because it says that when his servants went out, they went to the byways, and they went to the corners, and they went into all of the streets, and they brought all people, whether good or bad, into the banquet hall to be part of the feast, to experience the joy of the king and of his son at the wedding feast. There was an inclusion. There was a gathering in. There was an openness to the love of the king. There was an openness to his joy that said, I do not want to know this only in and of myself, but I must have others to share it with. Others must come and receive this joy. No matter who they are, no matter where they are in life, whether they are fabulously wealthy or whether they live in poverty. I must have them. There is, though, the case of the outcast in this passage. So while there is joy in the calling, we get to this portion of the passage where we read about the outcast, the man who, when the king came to inspect the guests to see who had come, was found to be without wedding clothes. Now there is some debate in what this means as far as the wedding clothes are concerned. There is a history, there is some evidence in the first century that that when someone of great stature would call a wedding feast, that one of the things that they would do would be to provide a wedding garment for those who came. So that when they entered in, they would be ready and prepared no matter how they came. So they might enter into that feast and enjoy it. Some think that in this passage also there might be evidence that those who were called simply went and got appropriate garments and this man didn't. It really is of little consequence where the others got their garment from. And it is more of consequence the fact that of the man's answer. For the king says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Why was he speechless? Because he knew of his own guilt. That he was trying to enter in and participate in the wedding feast on his own terms. How he wanted to. Maybe he thought to himself, I'm good enough. My clothes are just fine, thank you very much. I spent a lot of money on these. I'm good enough to enter into the feast. Or maybe he thought, "Ah, the king called, I'm just coming in. I'm just going to eat some of his food and 
If he sees me, that's okay, I'll duck out. But here he's caught. You see, the calling that we have is not one that we can come and answer on our own terms. The Pharisees tried to do that. On their own terms of their own self-righteousness. But here Christ is saying, when you come to be included in my, my kingdom, you must come a certain way. You see, the clothes you must wear are the clothes of the righteousness of Christ and the righteous deeds which he prepares for you to do. It is not on your own merit. It is not because you're good enough. So often many of us realize and feel that we are not good enough. And he says, that's how you need to come to me. Come as you are. Let me provide for you. Come to the cross where my son died, where joy is found, and you will have forgiveness. In Revelations we read that those who gathered around the throne of God were robed in white robes, made clean and pure through the blood of the Lamb. And then we read a few chapters later that the white robes that they wore were also their righteous deeds. And Paul speaks that the righteous deeds that we performed are the very ones that God himself has foreordained, has prepared beforehand for us to do. You see, whether you are coming from an area of unbelief, without faith, asking what is this thing called Christianity, and you have heard in this message that Christ receives you as you are, regardless of your lack of righteousness. He will clothe you in his goodness and in his righteousness. Or perhaps you've been a believer for some time now, and you have lost the joy of your salvation. You have forgotten what the king has called you to. The greatness of his feast, the beauty of his provision, that even in the good deeds you attempt to do, when you try to do them under your own strength, it is actually God who is working in you. It is He who is empowering you and enabling you, who is alongside of you enjoying the goodness of those deeds. He has called you into the feast to live in that feast. Last week, my son came and informed me that because of Pastor Johnson's illustration... John Kenyon had informed my son that he now knew what Nick felt like whenever I used Nick as an illustration in my sermons. And so since that illustration prospered the gospel fellowship of my son and John Kenyon, I thought, well, this week, why don't we have some grace? <laughs> in a couple of hours, my wife and I and all of our kids are going to load up in our truck and we're going to hook an RV to the back of the truck and we're going to take a two-week trip out to Utah. And my son and I have been having this dialogue for the last week or so. You see, it started out, I asked him, I said, Nick, are you excited about the vacation? And he said, eh, we're going out west to see some rocks. And I said, Nick, we have so much planned for you. You can't imagine it. And I said, I can't tell you all the things we have planned for you. And I'm not going to say them right here because that would spoil the surprise. But I told him, Nick, when we go out there, it's going to be two weeks of exploring the West. We are going to be out there having so much fun. You cannot believe what we have planned for you for this vacation. 
See, that's how God is calling us. Just like a child going on vacation who, at first blush, we, we can't even imagine the things that have planned. We say, uh, we're just going out west to see some rocks. And God says, no, I have so much more planned. Come into my feast. See what I have laid out for you. Experience the joy that I have prepared and experience it with me. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us eyes to see the beauty of what you are calling us to, what you have called us to, what you have involved us in, and that is the joy of your kingdom. A kingdom built on justice and righteousness, a kingdom that is inclusive, that loves all who will come to you with an open heart. Lord, you tell us that though many are called, few are chosen. Lord, our sin is so deep and dark. We are so against you that unless you called and chose us, unless you do the work of grace and change our hearts, we would not come into the feast. And so this morning we ask, change our hearts. Lord, for those who do not know you, change their hearts and call them to yourself, that they may enter the feast and the beauty and the glory of your forgiveness. And for those of us who have become anesthetized to the beauty of the feast that we live in, enliven our hearts with your joy, that we might know you deeper, love you more, and serve you with hearts of gratitude. For it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.